0: Hello and a warm welcome to GoonPod, the podcast which explores the highways and byways of the Goon universe, from the Goon shows themselves to the books, films and and television appearances featuring Sellers, Seeker, Milligan and even occasionally the odd Benteen. My name's Tyler Adams and I'm using this podcast as a way of uh, rediscovering the Goons, having been obsessed in my youth as such I'll, I'll no doubt get stuff wrong as the old memory fails me but hopefully I'll more or less muddle through with the aid of of some guests and uh, joining me today is the film academic and writer Dr Adrian Smith hello adrian hello
1: yes <laughs> it's funny to hear myself uh introduced like that but yeah i suppose that's as good, good a good description as any but yes you could just call me goon fan that would have been fine okay but... well
0: we'll come on to that in a minute um mm. but i understand that your, are uh, well obviously cinema is is a big passion of yours and i guess to a degree your career i understand you're a, a devotee of uh, italian cinema particularly
1: well that's a relatively new thing for me just in the last sort of 10 years my um, my focus has shifted towards European cinema and Italian film in particular. But for most of my life, I've primarily been a fan of British film, um, and but also uh, a huge fan of radio comedy. And um, And The Goons was probably the thing that got me started on that. My, my grandfather had been a big Goon Show fan uh, you know, when it was originally broadcast, and he would always talk about it. And then he had a tape, of some goon shows. And the first one that I ever heard, I remember him playing it for me when I was probably about 12, um, back in the eighties. And it was the, um, the batter pudding hurler of yeah Bexhill on sea, or is it the phantom batter pudding? Hurler?
0: The dreaded, the dreaded batter the dreaded pudding, pudding hurler.
1: I knew mm. there was something in there, but yeah. <laughs> so that was the first one that I heard. And, um, and that was it then. So I would get hold of tapes from the library because, was the only way you could hear stuff like, you know, like that and would make copies of the tapes and started to build up my own collection of goon shows, which I would listen to over and over again. and then that would expand into other radio comedies I've discovered. I'm sorry I ha- um, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. yeah again through, through library tapes because I spotted John Cleese and the goodies on the cover. And that was how I found that. So yes, yeah, so I'm always listening to those, but having to buy the tapes or copy the tapes from the library. And then I also started buying the Goon Show script books when I found them uh, secondhand. And um, but even before before that, I knew who the Goons were. I and mean, Harry Secombe was a big celebrity here mm. in the '80s, primarily for his television presenting. Peter Sellers, obviously was just well-known for his films to me and and Clouseau in particular. I knew about Spike Milligan for his poetry books. You know, I can still recite, although I won't do it now, but I can still recite the Ning-Nang-Nong, as can can pretty much everyone in my family. So I used to read his poetry books over and over and over and over when I was little. So when I finally heard The Goons, it wasn't a big surprise because I was already kind of aware of those guys and their world. So... Yeah, so I, start, I would start collecting them. I also started collecting the vinyls of the Goon Show because I got into vinyl when I was a teenager and I've still got all of those Goon Show records as well. And then, of course, along came BBC uh, Radio 7, I think they were called then, which they yes. were called 4 Extra. Yes, But they were 7 then and they started repeating the Goons and that was amazing. And so I began to voraciously record all of those as well. So uh, I got quite a big goon show collection from uh, from those broadcasts. So I didn't. I mean, a bit, a little bit like you, I stopped listening probably for a while, Um, and then I started listening again just by catching occasional broadcasts when they were just on the radio. I turned the radio on and it was the goons. Then I would listen. So yeah. So I haven't been listening constantly all this time. It's just kind of gone in and out but yeah i've always been a fan
0: yeah well i um think i'm a little bit older than you but i it was the late 80s and i by accident uh heard uh, that they they regularly repeated goon shows every every week on the national radio station in new zealand when i was growing up and it was by accident that i just heard just happened to hear one one day and it was the last episode proper that was the the last smoking seagoon and oh, that's great! That one it is. Well, it, it is, and I think, and I, always, I said this last time when I was speaking with um with Adam, uh, my last guest. It was possibly one of the best introductory Goon shows, I think, for 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 a newbie, if you like. And I heard that, and, it, and I was instantly hooked. Uh, and then basically, I just started, you know, from you know, every Saturday from then on, I would, I would stand by and tape it. And the thing is that they repeated. Um, well, they played two goon shows every Saturday, two different ones. They broadcast one at 3 PM in the afternoon, but the other one was broadcast at 5 AM, 4 or 5 AM in the morning hmm. for some inexplicable reason. So it was, it was for, I don't know, night shift workers or insomniacs or hmm. alcoholics. I don't know. Uh, but I, I would get up. I'd set my alarm. I would get up dutifully at 10 to five every Saturday morning go out and wow. uh set the tape recording. It was AM as well, so the, the you know, the the sound was a bit muddy. It wasn't it wasn't crisp. Um so sometimes what I would do would be uh like a safe cracker, I would twiddle the the tuning knob to get it as clear as, as possible. But sometimes then you'd get that real sort of sibilance on the on S words and things like that. So mm. so yeah, my first sort of I don't know, the first Twenty odd goon shows I had were uh, recorded from the radio because where I grew up there wasn't there was a small town there wasn't there was one sort of record shop that sold Hoovers as well, <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> and um, they didn't have any goon show vinyl or tapes or anything. So it was only when I went with my father sometime later to Christchurch, which was the nearest big city, that I managed to pick up some tapes from the BBC. Uh, releases and also the EMI tapes that had the musical bits clipped out. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I started building up a big collection of those. And in the end, because I, I later uh, in the in the early nineties I came over and lived in Belfast for a couple of years and joined the GS the Goon Show Preservation Society uh-huh. and started adding, uh, you know, adding, uh, filling the gaps in my collection by borrowing. Tapes of shows from the GSPS archive.
1: Well, that's how I met Adam Leslie. Was through the Goon Show Society. Yeah. Um, so I saw the the address for the Goon Show Preservation Society in one of the tapes that I'd borrowed from the library, and so I wrote to them, and they sent me a copy of their newsletter, and it just so happened that in that particular edition, Adam had written a letter. To do this <laughs> to right. his newsletter yeah and he had mentioned making a film that was kind of goon show inspired and that piqued my interest because i was just starting making films as well i, I just started at college uh doing uh, production and adam seemed to be like the the head of the local chapter or something, whatever they were called, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But the, the the regional society chairman or something. And, and it looked like he didn't live that far away from me. So I somehow, I can't remember exactly how, but I managed to get his phone number and um, and called him up. And it turned out, I didn't know, but it turned out he was basically the same age as me. You know, for all I knew, he could have been 55. Yeah. But um, he turned out to be my age, and he was making films with his mates. And I also... Was making films with my mates because i had video cameras so i ended up going to his house for a goon show preservation society meeting which is basically just three of us reading a goon show script and trying <laughs> to put on funny voices which i just could not do adam was very good at it but i could not do it at all but we very quickly moved away from the goon show me and adam uh because he introduced me to the Bonzo dog band
0: oh yeah and yeah
1: he played the guitar i played the drums we ended up forming a band And we ended up making quite a lot of videos together. He's in some films that I made and all this kind of stuff. And and we sort of drifted away from how we initially met, which was through the Goon Show. And now, you know, so I'm still friends with Adam 30 years later. Um, It's really funny that it was through the Goon Show Preservation Society newsletter that that kind of happened
0: i do regret that i yeah i never really had had anyone that i could talk about the goons with apart from my father because my father was um had been you know he'd listened at the time when they went out he was a he was keen on the goons but i didn't have any anyone that i could really talk to um you know on my level
1: well my grandfather so he was always a big fan and he actually um, one time when i was perhaps about 10 we drove to spike milligan's house (laughs) Right. He'd because he, he lived quite he lived in Kent, Spike Milligan, and he lived near my uh my great grandmother, so my grandfather's mother. So we were visiting her for a week or so on holiday or something, and he found out through the grapevine where Spike's house was. So he just drove us there. And we drove to Spike's house and rang the doorbell to ask if it was okay if we took a photo. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, on reflection, nobody answered the door which is good, because I think it would have been really awkward. I can't imagine Spike being that pleased if he'd have been the one to come to the door, but even more likely it would have been somebody else who would come to the door and told us to go away. Yeah. So, yeah. so I've, got a, I've got a photo of me somewhere, and I wish I knew where it was, sta- standing outside Spike Milligan's front door at about the age of 10. <laughs> <laughs>
0: was that in Rye?
1: Uh, yeah, near Rye. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, I mean, my grandfather he's still with us. He's eighty seven now, oh, wow. and we still sometimes talk about the goons. And a couple of years ago, I had to I had to drive him and my grandma on a long trip, and I'd downloaded some goon shows from uh, you know on, on the the iPlayer, and we listened to them in the car. So we still we still talk about that and have that in common, which is nice.
0: Do you feel that? And I hate to use the word they still have relevance, but do you think that they? still could find a younger audience or are they are they very much sort of set in their time now and that they'll gradually decline into the mists of
1: memory well it's interesting isn't it because they when you when you hear people talking about the goons it's primarily people who were listening to it when they were kids it seems to have been aimed or at least it attracted a primarily younger audience at the time you know like you hear people talking about how their parents didn't like it and didn't approve and all that kind of thing. So it was aimed at a younger audience and it seems, it's funny now that you associate it mainly with an older audience. So I have tried playing it to my own kids. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, they've just primarily been a bit bemused by it. I think, I guess the problem is now that so much of it, and we'll talk about this when we get to the movie, but a lot of goon shows are full of military references because obviously for them, at the Time and for their audience, or at least the parents of the audience, they'd all done military service, and some of them were still doing military service in the. In yes, the 50s. of course. Yes. So there's so much about the military that for kids now, that's all a bit kind of lost, and it does feel quite old-fashioned, I suppose, because of that, and the music, of course, is pretty old. Although I love the music, you know, the, the the Ray Allenton Quartet, I still I still listen to for fun. I think it's great. Um, and I used to sometimes make compilation tapes by copying just the songs into oh, really? another tape from the Goon Show. So I had my own Ray Ellington uh, compilation tapes. Um, but now, I've got them <laughs> now, now you can get Ray Ellington's uh, albums, which is quite fun. Yeah, no, I, the, the music for me was always a highlight, but um, I can understand why. That's why I was always disappointed with some of the vinyl albums that they would cut the mm. music out. Um, well,
0: the, no, the, the Wally Stott uh, Orchestra mm. was was fantastic. And they had, of course, George Chisholm. Some of the, you know, members of the orchestra would sometimes get given the odd line as well. And, and, yeah. and music, the Goon Show without music would be pretty unthinkable, I guess. Cause well, there's was... that,
1: yeah, there's that weird episode that they went up to Manchester to record called The Starlings. Yes. And that's yes. got no music and it doesn't feel like a Goon Show.
0: It's and very it de- go- very dead.
1: There's that other brilliant episode where the, where there was a musician strike. Yes. Um,
0: Tuscan salami scandal.
1: Yeah, I love that one where they're doing all the music themselves. That's yes. great. So I do like that one. But but yeah, by and large, I loved the music. I think what and the problem with Down Among the Zed Men, one of the problems with this this film, is the music, uh, is missing for me. But I suppose it was still quite early on, early days in the Goon Show, and they hadn't perhaps settled into that being a, an important part of their identity anyway I don't know.
0: Yeah let's 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 get into it. So you chose Down Among the Zed Men um, mm. from 1952 obviously it was the the only, I mean the Goons obviously had a few forays into films yeah. um, but this is really the only film, feature film, featuring all four original members and I guess it could be described as a uh, gently satirical attack on the National national Service and Cold War paranoia um, which I guess makes it sound a bit more complex <laughs> than it really is <laughs> uh, but what made you, what was it that made you choose this? So this
1: film was produced by a man called E.J. Fancy and he became a really central figure in my PhD thesis a few years ago uh, as I began to sort of uncover his incredible career and his role in the British film industry. He was quite a figure for, um, from the, from the 1940s, he started making films in the early forties and uh, he, he, he his family became this big organization in the British film industry, but no one really ever talks about him. So I decided to to do that and uh, researched him quite a lot and wrote about him. And so this is, this is one of his many, quota quickie films Mm. um Mm -hmm. directed by mclean rogers who was another guy that just churned out from you look at his his career he was making films since the silent days and um just churning them out and they were all they i mean most of them you'll have never heard of but uh, they're all pretty cheap and quick to make um probably supporting features most of the time um, which this one certainly would have been i think but yeah, so he, particularly by this time, so in the in the late 1940s, something called the E.D. Levy was introduced by the government, which was basically kind of tax breaks for British film. If you were yes. making your film and getting it into a cinema, you would be guaranteed a certain amount of income. And for people like E.J. Fancy, that meant that they could make films that were completely <laughs> terrible, but they would still make their money back. And Down Among the Z-Men is just one of those, really. Uh, it is, it's, it's a very poor film. I'm not going to try and pretend it's a masterpiece, but, um, (laughs) but it's not even the first film that EJ Fancy made that have the goons in it, um, which I think is, is quite fun. So he made a film the year before it's a, it's a kind of fake documentary called London entertains, um, which Mm -hmm. EJ directed, uh, himself, which he didn't do very often. He mainly produced. And then he was also a distributor. That was his business his main business income was through distribution in the end and his family continued to do that right up into the well his daughter who's in this film didn't retire until 2012 as a distributor wow okay. um, so a very long running career and a sort of family dynasty and a very strange family which I don't really need to go into now, but they were very interesting. But anyway, so London Entertains features a sequence where Eamon Andrews, because Eamon Andrews is kind of like this presenter. Uh, have you seen it? Do you know that one?
0: I, I've seen clips. I've seen the Goon okay. clips.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So it's about a group of girls who come back to London from their, I think, they've just, I think they're on their summer break or something from finishing school in Switzerland. and Or they've just finished school finished finishing school and they start an escort agency in london (laughs) but it's all very clean and above board what they mean by escort is literally that that they will take tourists out for a nice day out so you get a group of beautiful girls and some rich businessman who's come to London for the day wants to be shown all the sights and so aim and andrews just seems to know these girls apparently and hangs out with them and so the plot follows a group of these girls taking somebody around London and so on the way they they go to the um the was it the paris theater yes where wherever they were recording the goons so you get very early goon action in that film because this is 1951 mm. so all four of them are there and we see them doing their um we see them kind of warming up the audience before the recording starts. We see Andrew Timothy, uh, I think. We mm-hmm. also see uh, Charles Cry... Uh, not Charles Cryson. was his name, the producer?
0: Dennis May Wilson.
1: Den- uh, it could have been Dennis May Wilson. Um,
0: well, he, he was the Series 1 uh, yeah, producer. Yeah, maybe so. it's
1: him. Yeah. Then we see one of the producers anyway talking to the audience. So it's really interesting to get some little behind-the-scenes bits there at the goons. So E.J got the goons into that film he also did a film a bit later on which was also directed by mclean rogers called calling all cars which although he's not in the credits spike milligan is actually doing a voice he's he is the voice of a car in this film <laughs> right um and the film stars Carju robinson oh yes who is who is a, I mean talking about what you were asking about the goon show and is it still relevant today kaji robinson definitely isn't his films are so painful to watch now uh he's a he's a very unfunny comedian who seemed to have quite a successful career uh 60 odd years ago but anyway
0: i seem to i remember him predominantly from i think he was in carrying up the kyber as a fake year with a did the rope trick or something like that yeah,
1: yeah. but he was a regular in stuff in the 50s um, yes. and it's just pretty painful but anyway so Spike was in that as well so EJ had this relationship with the goons somehow I don't know the full story as to why and even in the, in the credits for another film that he made called Climb Up the Wall which was the first film by Michael Winner um, features Michael Bentine at one point so yeah so EJ was making these cheap films but getting in talent and obviously that's how you know Dan among the Z men came about. It was something that he could get these guys and these dancing girls and he could get them fairly cheap because they were they were still relatively unknown at this point I mean they were sort of famous on the radio but not in film, and so he could probably get them quite cheap. That's my suspicion okay. and um but they, but also significantly the script wasn't written by Spike, so you've got two other writers trying to do a goon type scripts. And not quite getting it right.
0: Well, I guess part of the problem, because it was Jimmy Grafton, wasn't it, and yeah. and a another that did the script. And I know that Jimmy Grafton was an editor on some of the early Goon Show mm-hmm. scripts. Obviously, because the bulk of the early series—series series one, series two, series three—of the Goon Show don't exist anymore. I guess you, you could argue that possibly this film did more or less reflect humor up to a point because we, we don't have those shows to to listen to. However, mm. to me it just it just seemed very much a rush job. Get, get it filmed. Get it out.
1: Yes, what is it, rsm Private Eccles, sir. Usual request for promotion board. Eccles? Not him
0: again. <laughs> Six years that man's been trying to get a stripe. He's very keen, sir. Is he? Mm, well, that's something. All right, I'll see him. Excuse me a moment, my dear.
1: It's see old you, see you now. Cap off. Right. On the other right! Quick, start! Private Eccles, sir. You don't salute with your cap off, you know. Now then, Eccles. Unfortunately, I've not seen my way before to promote you to Lance Corporal. There are some privates you know who are keen, but not very intelligent. There are, sir? Yes, there are. But in your case, I'm gonna give you a chance to prove that you're not one of them. Yeah, that's what I am. What? Not one of them. Mm-mm, yes. Now then, I'm going to make you PT instructor. Acting unpaid, of course, in charge of the new draft. Oh, the Z men, sir. No, the Z girls. There's a dozen or so racks joining us.
0: Oh
1: and there's no time for that sort of thing. If you're gonna make an efficient NCO, you'll have to learn how to use your voice. Oh, but I, I do use my voice, sir. I use it every time I speak.
0: You mentioned that the purpose of these quota quickies was pretty much you know th- th- there was very little thought given to quality. It was more more mm-hmm. about just you know making money. did e j fancy you know did he not care about making something that would actually last or that would have enduring appeal or have you know something that had a decent script, a no. good cast no?
1: <laughs> not really. He was making films, very turning them around very quickly. They would be in cinemas for a few weeks. And then he'd make a load of money and go on to the next project. And it was as simple as that. He wasn't expecting people to still be talking about his films 60, 70 years later. And yeah, he would make films that were, he was quite good at seeing what was popular and making films about that. So he started making short um, supporting features during the war that were, that, that, that were picking up on on themes of what it was like to be in London during the Blitz and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, he made Britain's first rock and roll film um, later on I think in 1957 so uh, he what was, was quite that called? good at, uh, that's called rock you sinners okay. which, uh, which yeah. also features his daughter Adrian fancy of no she was no when she was acting she was called Adrian Scott uh, and she's she's in down among the Zed men somewhere okay though try as I might I not entirely sure I've spot I've got her, but I we can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, so no, yeah, he, he was just making these films, turning them around, making money. When you look at the kind of other movies that he was distributing and importing from Europe and selling around the UK, quality was not something he really had his eye on. It was all about turning profit.
0: Do you have any sort of idea as to when it was filmed exactly? Because it went out in October, 50, it was released in October 52. Mm. The second series I, had ended that July.
1: Well, I would imagine because he was turning these things around pretty quick. It wouldn't surprise me if the goons had agreed to do this because they just finished and they had a break between series. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if they if it was just shot that summer and then banged out
0: Yeah, well, away. What intrigues me is, and it's always intrigued me this, is the reasons behind Bentin's departure from the, Mm. from the goons. He did series one and two, and then he didn't return after that. Now, if they'd completed series two in July 52 and then started filming this, I'm wondering, you know, at that point, had he already decided that he was through with doing the show or perhaps because series three began, I think in November, 52 some sometime in between the end of series two and the beginning of series three he must have decided he didn't want to do it anymore and yet still did the film
1: yeah maybe the film maybe watching the film made him think oh i don't think i want to do (laughs) it maybe i mean it's it's interesting like you said we don't really get to hear those early goon shows with michael benton which is kind of a shame but just based on his performance here It feels because I'm so used to the goons being the three of them. Mm. It feels like he, what he is doing here doesn't really quite fit with what everyone else is doing. It's he's doing something else, which I know this is probably sacrilegious, but it's not quite as funny either. I found his character in this to just be quite grating. Yes. And I don't, I don't know if that was just for this film or if that was what he was like in the show, I don't know, but I found this his character of Professor Pureheart and his his funny walk and then his little um like cabaret act on the stage that they mm. did towards the end of the film. I just I just it left me completely cold. Whereas the other three are still doing basically classic goons. I mean Spike is doing Eccles and uh Seacomb is just himself, although he's called Harry Jones rather than Seacoon. And um salas is doing Blood Knock. And they're all they're all kind of classic goon. And then you got Michael Bentine. Just try, it seems like he's trying too hard he to be funny. Oh, good morning! Now uh, tell me, uh, that young lady leaving just now seems the right outfit for the warm weather. Ah, uh, did she get it here? Well, uh, I sort of helped. Now <laughs> uh, tell me, do you think an outfit like that would suit me? What were
0: those legs? <laughs> Yeah, so it, sellers comes across as being subdued, a little bit nervous, maybe. And obviously, the blood knock in the goon show that, that we know, Major Bloodnock as opposed to Colonel Bloodnock, yeah. as he is in the film. Bloodnock in the later series is a is a real sort of thumb on the scales magic, isn't he? He's a, a blustering, lecherous, cowardly figure. And, and the blood knock of the film is dull, stuffy, yeah, just he's, doesn't
1: he's playing it more like it's a real character in a real movie. Yes. He's not doing it as a funny character. Apart from again, he does a little stand-up cabaret turn uh, in the show. But apart from that, yeah, he's playing it much more as he would go on to be, more like a, basically a proper actor.
0: Mm. And he was only twenty-six, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he he does the uh, recreates an American war film. Do we know if that was something that was part of a, his act from the from the windmill? Or
1: yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's very good at doing the voices. Mm. That's for, that's for sure. But yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure where that comes from. I would assume that it was just it was a, a term that he had done many times, and that was you know that was this part of the film was just an excuse to see some more dancers and yeah recreate the windmill. What I, what I do like with this bit actually, sorry, is that uh, you've got Andrew Timothy introducing each act, um, so it's quite nice that they've got their announcer in here as well. I don't know how many series Andrew Timothy did, but he was the original. Yes, he was. So wasn't he?
0: Was that Andrew Timothy? Because Yeah.
1: So who, no. Well,
0: I thought that, because you have Graham Stark, who's uh, mm. playing one of the villains. <laughs>
1: yeah, straight out of the film law.
0: Yes. And and his, his associate, who poses as uh, an adjutant, um, I thought that his colleague was Andrew Timothy.
1: As oh wait, know. really? Okay, I might have got that wrong.
0: And I think that the MC, if you like, at the concert, oh, okay. I think was Jimmy Grafton himself.
1: Oh, was it? Okay, he looked yeah. like him. Yeah. Oh, never mind then. <laughs> I just, I just, I to be totally honest, I just assumed it was right. because he was doing the announcing. Although it's quite difficult to find any photos of Andrew Timothy to be sure. But oh yeah, yeah, and I'm looking. I found a picture of him now. I think you're
0: right. And we've got Carol Carr as uh, an MI5 agent who masquerades as Bloodnock's daughter while being undercover. And and I didn't really know much about her. I did a little bit of research, and, and I guess you you know more than me about it, but she was the first singer to appear on television after it resumed after the war. Oh, um, no,
1: I didn't know that. That's interesting.
0: And she also, yeah, she also they did some colour television test broadcasts in 1957, and she sang on those. Um, but she didn't really have much of an acting career outside of this film. No, Um, she
1: seems to be mainly a singer and entertainer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, But the whole film itself, I guess they were just, they wanted some form of thriller plot, and they wanted to tie in uh, an opportunity for the goons themselves to do their little set pieces, as you say, Benteen's chair-back routine, Sellers doing his impressions, and Dancing Girls, the television toppers.
1: Yeah. yeah, I and mean, for me, uh, it's great to see uh, Eccles being Eccles. And you know that, that I think Spike does a great job here. He's one of the few characters from the show that comes through in this film, kind of how you imagine him. And yes. I love the fact that he gets to play the trumpet as well. Yes. Which we don't see him do very often.
0: Yeah. I mean, Harry Seekin in The Goon Show was, was known as, I think in the early series, just handsome Harry Seekin. This was before the Seaguin character evolved. Oh, okay. But he was just known as Harry Jones in this, Mm. but he was essentially, I guess, just playing himself. Yeah. Or a a heightened version of himself. But he somehow manages to enlist in the the Z-Men regiment where he finds himself enlisted, and he ends up sharing barracks with Eccles. But I didn't quite understand the whole thing with the formula, the secret gas formula. So no. Benteen's character had <laughs> written on, on a piece of newspaper.
1: Yeah, which Harry has in his pocket. Harry is playing a hapless shop assistant in the village and he is a he's a he's an actor or he's you know he's performed in a local village play um as Bats of the Yard, a great detective. And he keeps getting out this newspaper cutting of his review. Uh he's very proud of it. And then Professor Pureheart comes into the shop and suddenly the, the formula hits him and he writes it down on a piece of paper but that turns out to be the same piece of paper um, which Harry then still has in his pocket. But Harry has been enlisted by two crooks pretending to be police or MI5 or something who say that they're looking for this evil professor who's like a Russian spy or something. But actually they're, they're, they're the spies So Harry thinks that he's got to find the professor, uh, then finds the professor camping and then hides in his truck as the professor drives to the army base where Harry then accidentally gets thrown in with all the new recruits. Yeah, it's all a bit tenuous. (laughs) But what I do like, I do like the early scene in the shop where Harry is uh, having to serve some customers and he's He's doing some pretty good little comedy business there, but he he's playing it. He is he's doing comedy, but as was often the case with Harry Seacombe, he also wanted to be a serious performer and a, particularly a singer, and so he also gets the opportunity to be a little bit of a, a sort of sensible, serious leading man here. And so perhaps he had a bit of a word with the writers of this that he would get the opportunity to do a bit of that. So he can do the silly stuff with Spike, but he also can do some serious romantic leading man bits yes. with Carol, which is yeah. quite nice.
0: Yeah. He's, he's crying with shattered <laughs> glass as well, wouldn't it? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it is great to see him doing some of those sounds that are so familiar from the radio show. To actually see him doing that in the flesh is pretty funny. Uh, I mean, I know we can sort of slag this film off as really not being very good, but if you are a fan of these guys, it's great to see them in action in their youth because you don't get get to see them doing the goons on camera very often. Uh, I mean, obviously the main one that we all know is the last goon show of all. So it's great to see them in their prime doing this stuff even if it's not exactly classic material.
0: Yeah, cuz obviously uh, I think most civilized people agree that the most successful goon show transfer to film was Battle horn Battlehorn. What's your take on that?
1: Oh, I've 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 never seen that one.
0: Oh, you've never seen that one? Okay. No, okay. So that's um that's a short film. It's ostensibly about, I think, from memory, a valuable antique gets stolen from a museum by I think Dick Emery, and you have Sellers and Milligan only.
1: Now that you mention Dick Emery, that does sound familiar. That oh, I that, that I have seen that. You're right. I'd forgotten about that.
0: Right. Well, that although it was a short film and, and Seacom wasn't in it, that captured uh, goon show humour that we know today most sort of faithfully, I think. Whereas like like this, yeah, I mean it was um the bits with the uh gorilla impressions. I just wrote on my notes, oh dear, when um Seekim <laughs> S- 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 <laughs> so, and Milligan were, were impersonating gorillas. There was the brigadier done it wordplay, just stuff like that. Absolutely. It's it's just disposable stuff. But like you say, I guess EJ Fancy was just wanting to capitalise on the uh popular act of the day, get it out yeah. there and take the money and run.
1: Now I do remember it now. I used to have the case of the Muckinese Battlehorn on videotape right. in the nineties. I'd forgotten all about that. That's really funny. Yeah, I think you're right. That one does capture the, the kind of lunacy of it all a bit more. This film, maybe because it was because of the director being McLean Rogers and he's been making films for twenty years and has a certain way of getting this done very quickly and economically. There's a far there's far less lunacy. Mm this is much more of a straight kind of army film with a few little comedy bits, but it's not a straight, it's not a surreal or something like that. One.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm watching the film. I'd, I'd seen it maybe twice before 30 years ago. Uh, so I watched it preparing for our conversation and I ended up, you know, when you are sort of looking for things to focus on, to pull out of it and talk about mm-hmm. and and I sort of sort of fell down a rabbit hole in the sense that I noticed that there was a there's a scene, there's Brigadier Dunnett's office, and one of his subordinates is quite clearly reading a Superman comic.
1: Mm. I don't know if
0: you picked up on that.
1: Yes, I did notice that.
0: Now I'm not a comics fan, as particularly superhero comics. I, you know, I'm not. That's not my thing. But. I have a couple of friends who really know their onions when it comes to old comics, uh, superheroes, etc. And I was talking to them the other night and I just mentioned, I just said, Oh yeah, was watching this because they're both aware of the goons and they both know of Down Among the Zed Men. I said, I was watching Down Among the Zed Men and this guy was reading a Superman comic. And one of them said, Oh, which what <laughs> have you got a screenshot? So I, I managed to get a screenshot and I sent it to him. And within about five minutes, he'd managed to identify the 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 comic itself and it was from it was from september 1951 and it was a british reprint of an australian reprint of a u.s superman comic
1: Mm. basically
0: so so it made me wonder i wonder if it was if if it was filmed and at first i thought i wonder if it was filmed around september 51 because that's when series one ended but Uh, like you say it wouldn't have been because they'd have got it out they'd have filmed it and got it out straight away wouldn't they
1: it's probably it's more likely to be a comic than just been lying around somewhere. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, That is pretty funny. It's it seems almost slightly incongruous to have a Superman comic yeah. in a in a British military based uh, comedy film. It's it's really funny. You'd more expect it to be the Beano or something. Yes, <laughs> There's, it's really interesting. And I, like I was saying, I've been trying to identify where Adrian Scott or Adrian Fancy is in this film and if you if you just google image search her name and this movie what you get are pictures of carol so some people have clearly thought that that was her and have attached her name to photos of her i the only thing i can think of because i've I've seen adrian fancy in other films i think she is the main blonde woman standing in the middle of the front row of the dancers in the um like the PE lesson or whatever yes. you call
0: it. Yes, yes, that Spike talks to. Spike, yeah. makes talks to. Spike talks to I
1: think that's her. That's my only theory, because you've got this group of dancers, Leslie Roberts, 12 toppers, as I think they're brilliantly known. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm fairly sure that that's Adrian in the middle. So she doesn't really speak, but she does get some nice close-ups. Um, but she she uh, she played several roles across the the fancy movies before she focused mainly by the end of the fifties, she was just doing. She was on the business side of the, of the family, but uh, some of those early films. She's in a film with, um, alongside Joan Collins and Jackie Collins. They're both in one of these as well, one of these fancy films.
0: So, with the fancy films, were they were were, were any of them the launching pad to so say Joan Collins, Jackie Collins were any of them the launching pad for the careers of of later stars?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, Michael Winner, he got his career in directing through making films for EJ Fancy. Hmm. Um, so he's one of the bigger names to come out of that fancy stable. Um, but no, not many. I mean, like I yeah, said, so there's early Joan Collins and Jackie Collins. Um, he tended to use a lot of sort of music hall and windmill type comedians and stuff. Right. That yeah. People who were popular at the time. So it's it's more just luck that any of them when it went on to have bigger careers. Uh, I mean like I said, he mainly uh from the sixties onwards he didn't really make many more films. It was mainly distribution. And his family, with his daughter Adrian and her brother Malcolm, were running one of his companies called New Realm. And in the seventies they made a whole they made a massive amount of money from Buying the UK rights for Emmanuel, uh, you know the French yes. sexy film. Yeah. So they they had the company had a lot of success through that. So that was that was a big film that they had some involvement with. Um, but you know, there's not a lot of well-known names that really came out of the fancy stable.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Emmanuel. I believe you are also a leading authority on um, the British sex comedy films of the seventies.
1: <laughs> no, uh, well, no, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to put that rumor to bed, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> no, I have written, uh, yeah, this is one of those things that I, I keep trying to get away from and keep getting pulled back into. Uh, I have, because of the period, the time period that I've written about such a lot, it's kind of inevitable that you have to end up talking about this stuff because there was so much of it. Uh, I mean, EJ Fancy, particularly his company made most of their money from the late 50s onwards by importing European sex films and repackaging them for British audiences. So a lot of that kind of continental smut that people would go and see, the sort of ooh-la-la factor Mm. type films were coming from people like EJ Fancy. So yeah, I've ended up writing a lot about them from a history point of view but no, I'm not. I'm certainly not an expert on the, the sex comedies like the, confessions films and all that sort of stuff.
0: My my friend Gary is a huge admirer of the film. Come play with me. The um, oh, Harrison Marks masterpiece.
1: Terrible. <laughs> oh. I mean that that film is it's down among the, it's worse than down among the Z Men in terms of being painful to watch, but it just imagine down among the Zed men, but then throwing in loads of naked nurses. Um, uh, yeah. Somehow, somehow that doesn't improve things. It's, it's a very painful film to watch. I've watched it once, um, when I was reviewing it for a magazine at the release that had just come out, but it's pretty terrible. A lot of those films are bad.
0: Yeah. Just as a disclaimer, what I say he's a huge Amara. Um, I mean, it, it fascinates him horribly. He, he always, um, talks about the scene in it with, um, Oh, telfrin thomas the actor telfrin thomas oh, right. um he says he he corpses completely corpses in the middle of this scene and it's just left in because yeah. the director either didn't care or was too drunk to notice well
1: possibly a bit of both yeah no it's pretty painful thankfully none of the goons were in that one or you'd have to do a whole episode on it yeah
0: <laughs> So with regards to uh, this film, if it had been better directed, if there'd been a better script, uh, possibly, if Benteen hadn't been in it, if it had been a better film altogether, do you think it could have led to a series of successful goon films?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? They did try several times, and they also, obviously they did the tried; like They, try, they mm. were trying to break out of radio, but it just... What they perhaps just didn't quite understand, which all their listeners did, was that the Goon Show was perfect for the radio. By trying to visualise it, you lose something. and Radio comedy can create things in your mind that you cannot create on screen. The only way you could possibly begin to create visually what the Goons were doing is in animation, maybe. And I've often wondered why, people haven't taken Goon Show episodes and turned them into cartoons. Because with real people on the screen, you have to bring it down to a certain level of reality. And what was great about the Goon Show was that there was no pretense of reality at all. And so I just I just don't know. Like You mentioned the Muckanese Battlehorn, which is pretty good as a standalone thing. But uh, by and large, all of their attempts to visualise the Goon Show were less successful than yes. the radio show because they just we're all missing that special something that that radio comedy has and it's that ability just with sound to create fantastical worlds that can be ridiculous but you buy it because you you can visualize it in your mind whereas if you're trying to create that on screen it just doesn't quite work especially on very low budgets and low Technical capabilities of 1950s television and things. It just, I mean, this film could have been funny, perhaps if it had had more time and better people involved uh, behind the scenes. But it still wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a goon show. It would just have to be its own thing.
0: Could you have envisaged a, a, a goon, an animated goon show series in the 60s along the lines of the Beatles cartoon?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know what the what the Beatles were doing. Who were obviously entirely influenced by the goons as well what they would when you look at something like yellow submarine which i know wasn't actually the real beatles anyway yeah that level of visual surrealism is what the goons were doing in your mind when you're watching it and so that's why i've always thought that it would be great for somebody to just take a whole goon show episode and then animate it just to see what that would be like Um, I think that would be a really interesting project for somebody. Yeah, it would have worked. It could have been more surreal. But again, even with animation, you're still then tied to one person's uh, interpretation of that. And what's great about the radio is, of course, everyone listening can have their own interpretation of that.
0: I kind of am on board with, because obviously Milligan and Sellers, and possibly even Seekham, drew cartoons of how they saw the characters looking. Obviously the Tally Goons were puppets and, and I'm kind of on board with how Grip Pipe Thin looks. And, and I suppose Henry and Minnie and, yeah. and, and Neddy, I can, I can kind of accept those. The biggest difficulty I have is with the visual representation of Blue Bottle and Eccles, because mm-hmm. in my head, they look nothing like the sort of schoolboy and the, well, creature that Eccles is depicted as. Everyone's going to have a slightly different mental image of these characters. And I guess nailing them, nailing one image of a character is always going to be problematic.
1: Yeah, it would be an interesting thing to see. But yeah, I think ultimately it's best left as it is.
0: (laughs) Obviously, you say, you know, you kind of drifted away from the goons. and, And did you discover any other pop culture through the goons?
1: Well, I was listening, I, I discovered again through the radio, through the radio section of the library, uh, cassettes of Razor Laugh. Um, so I would copy all the Peter Sellers bits where he was playing Crystal Jolly Bottom right. and, um, and other things like, uh, the Peter Sellers vibe, you know, albums and, and stuff like that. And the Michael Benteen solo radio shows, um, mm. yep. they're really great. I love those. They
0: are. Yes, they are.
1: Obviously, I was reading Spike's books from a young age and the war memoirs and other things. Um, I think Monty Python, I was probably getting into Python at around the same time as I was introduced to the goons. Mm. And I've started collecting the Monty Python albums as well. And pretty much anybody who who ever said that the goons was an influence, you'd end up sort of exploring their stuff as well. Um, And so many people have said over the years that the goons were were, were an important influence on them, and even people like Eddie Izzard and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I suppose I've always been following those threads in one way or another. I came very close back in the 90s when I was at university. I came very close to getting an interview with Harry Seacom. Um, wow. Just, just for a student magazine, he was performing the um, Pickwick. Uh-huh. I spoke to Harry's agent. I got Harry's agent on the phone and was trying to arrange um, uh, to go and do an interview with him, which would have been amazing. Yes. But then, unfortunately, Harry was taken ill, and so wasn't performing for that week, and someone else was filling in. So I didn't get to do it. The closest I ever—I was actually in the same room, <laughs> uh, technically, with Harry Seacon. Right. <laughs> but I—but it was the Royal Albert Hall. Oh. And it was—it was a <laughs> recording of Songs of Praise. So, uh, I could see him in a box right across the other side of the hall and he turned around and waved everybody in the hall. And that's the closest I ever got to Harry Seacombe, and that was back in, it must have been 1998. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so I never did quite get to meet any of them. So I went to Spike's house, and no one answered the door. And I've been in the Royal Albert Hall with Harry Seacombe. Um, So, but that's about it. But I've always, 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 always been a fan of anything that those guys have been, connected to, um, in one way or another, like I said, even to the point of enjoying Ray Ellington and Max Geldray. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, once I started getting into the goons, I would, I was basically, um, just a whore for, for, for getting anything, I everything I could in terms of books, mm-hmm. tapes, I'd record everything, anything that was going to be on TV that would feature a guest appearance by one of the goons. I would, I would stand by, you know, with the finger on the pause button to, to record it. Um, I remember I, I had a tape. God knows where it is now. I had a tape, a three-hour tape, which was just made up of little clips from various TV shows, like You Bet, presented by um, Matthew Kelly. Oh, Matthew right, Kelly yeah. used to do the show called You Bet, and there was yeah. one one show that Milligan appeared on, and I, and I just huh. all I did was I would tape. The bits when he was speaking, and then pause it when he wasn't. Wow. <laughs> so uh, very unsophisticated. But I had a tape just full of stuff like like uh, clips like that, and clips of um, the Ratties, which was a animated series that I think Spike's daughter wrote, and he oh, right. narrated. And I had I remember there was when I was living in Belfast, there was a there was some some celebration of a of a television an old television studio. It's 50th anniversary or something, and they showed a clip, or showed loads of clips on uh, on this show. And one of them was Harry Seacombs. This is your life appearance from 1958, when uh, Sellers is done up as Bloodnock and Milligan, I guess, is Eccles, and they're carrying Harry Seacombs around on a sedan chair.
1: Huh.
0: And Ray Allington turns up, and oh, I think, they, seen I, that. I think great. they I think they drop Harry Seacombs by mistake, and it just ends up descending into chaos. I used to have loads of, of clips like that.
1: And now of course we just look at everything up on YouTube.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> oh god yeah, the analogue way of being a fan back in the day. Yeah. It was it was hard work. You had to yeah. work hard to uh, to get stuff like that.
1: I know, see now here we are. The kids today they just <laughs> don't know how good they've got it. But I do think it's great that with um I mean, Radio four extra, as we've got it now. Yes now called is my favorite station and you know, they they play so much great stuff from the archives that would have otherwise. I mean, the BBC never used to repeat the Goon Show or any of that stuff, and so now to just get this stuff being broadcast weekly is brilliant. Absolutely, I, I love it. It's great. I mean, I like listening to the Dad's Army radio show and the Steptoe and Son radio show. You know, all this stuff is just you know, Hancock's half hour They're just repeated daily, and it's uh, it's a kind of it's a golden time to be a fan of classic radio comedy. It is so easily available now. A few years ago, somebody was putting on a live production of a recreation of The Goon Show. Um, they did a yes. tour in the UK, and I didn't get to go, unfortunately, but my grandparents did, and right. they really loved it. And um, they sent me a copy of the program and everything. And it was great for them 60 years later to, because uh, he never, one of my grandfather's greatest regrets is that he never went. He never got tickets to go to a recording of the Goon Show. Even though he lived in London in the 50s, he never Mm. went. And it's always been this great regret of his. So for him, it was brilliant to actually get to go to a recreation of a live recording um, was really fab. So that just shows that, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that probably a good percentage of the audience were probably grey-haired but still, yeah. it just shows that there is still an interest and that there are people out there still doing this stuff and interested in in it in, in enough to make it commercially viable to put on a production of The Goon Show, which I think is really good.
0: Yeah, Esther Renson used to go regularly to Goon Show oh, right. recordings. She she often talks <laughs> about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I know the, the live show that you're talking about because there's, there's a live show on YouTube I watched a couple of weeks ago with... Uh, three guys who were very good. I know that was it back early 2000 2001 that Jeffrey Holland and Andrew Seacom, and I want to say who was the other one? Was it Christopher Timothy? Did they get well, together? I, mean,
1: I know they did one on the radio because I remember back in yeah it was about two thousand there was a Goon Show night on radio. Yes, Four,
0: that was it. and
1: yeah. uh, I've, I've still I, I've got that somewhere. I, I had that on a tape and. um yeah they did a recreation of a show uh and it was christopher timothy and um yeah andrew Seacombe. i'd forgotten that it was jeffrey holland as well but yeah so yeah that was really good the live show i saw the the live show that i didn't see that one but a couple of years earlier the same i think it was the same production company did ray on the horn
0: that was fantastic i absolutely loved i i had that on I had that recorded on video, so I've got it somewhere. It was really, really well done. That was, uh, well that was done. very
1: good. Yeah, that mm. was really good production. Yeah, um, And I think they also, they've also they also done a Hancock's Half Hour. So it's obviously having it again on the radio is helping to create interest again and a new audience for this stuff. I know another group a couple of years ago were doing live shows of uh, recreations of I'm Un- Sorry, I'll read that again. Mm. So all, all this stuff is still around, which is great. It's not completely consigned to the atomic dustbin of history
0: yes <laughs> so if you is there anything else you want to discuss with regards to the film
1: i think we've probably covered it i know it's very easy to slag this film off. yeah <laughs> um but it, there's still much to enjoy uh it's definitely if you've never seen it and you're a goon fan you have to see it oh yes um and just sort of try and try and to take just take it for what it is and not judge it too harshly for what it isn't and then you can find some things to enjoy
0: it isn't the how you would introduce someone to the goons i wouldn't stick this film on for them um i'd probably give them something like the last smoking seagull like we said earlier but uh no as as you say it's very easy to snark and to there's so many podcasts out there where the, the the whole purpose seems to be to watch old films and then complain about it because it was made before nineteen seventy seven, you know. Mm. It, it was very much of its time, but it's a, it's a fascinating historical artifact mm. showing the four goons as they were then. Um, although, what was going on with? I know, I know he, I knew he had it in real life, but what was going on with Benteen's hair and beard and <laughs> and all
1: that? I know, and he's he's he appears to have rickets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, the the hair and the yeah and the, the whole look there is like an early um, look. It's, it's like the the look that Rolf Harris would would go on it's... to adopt in the sixties.
0: <laughs> yeah, um,
1: but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's definitely again. He just seems to be trying a little bit too hard to be funny. Yes, uh, and that's par partly maybe the problem. Which perhaps you know again, it's so difficult to. To try and imagine whether that was funny in 1952. Oh, like that maybe, maybe that was really funny at the time, and we've just become a bit numb to that kind of humour.
0: That's a very good point. That, that is a good point because uh, it's been many, many, many years since I've seen the Three Stooges. But was he was he trying to sort of do a Three Stooges kind of mm, routine? Yeah, maybe. When Harry Seacombe, at, at the end of the film disguises himself or dresses up as pure heart as been team um i was getting a whiff of getting uh, serious rory mcgrath vibes from oh, yes,
1: <laughs> yeah well that's two um blacklisted former celebrities <laughs> as we've mentioned now rory mcgrath and rolf harris yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> tick those off your list well listen adrian thank you so much for for coming on and um i've learned so much um oh, thank you for having me and in terms of uh, where people can, can hear you and find you, tell me about your, your podcast.
1: Ah, uh, yes. So, so we've got, I've got a, poc- uh, a more sort of film-based podcast called Second Features, which I am the co-host with Dr. Laura Main, and we take a, a cult movie and sort of put some sort of analysis on it. And then we, we generally interview some uh, academic who is a bit of an expert in that area as well. So it's it's we're trying to make that podcast uh, accessible, but still slightly kind of academic and analytical, just because that's kind of what we both do for our jobs, I suppose. But also it's relatively casual. I don't want to put anyone off who... Thinks it might be too academic, but um, it's quite hard to describe. But anyway, so second features is good fun. We've done films like uh, Roger Moore's "The Man Who Haunted Himself" and um, "Death Line We did so. We're we're picking quite entertaining films, I hope so. Yeah. So there's that one, and then I've also just started an Italian cult film uh, one called the called "Wild Wild Podcast," and uh, that's you can find us find both of those things on all of your podcasting platforms and we're also on twitter uh if you want to pick us up on there but yeah so it's all good fun i don't really know why i keep taking on all these extra things because it's not like i've got loads of spare time but it you know as you know it, podcasting is kind of addictive once you get the idea you just feel like you've got to do it
0: i hope you enjoyed this edition of goon pod and uh, i'll be back in a week or so with another episode Possibly looking at the life of Larry Stevens, so watch this space. Please tell your friends and please follow on the Twitters. I'm at Goon Show Pod. Thanks for listening and bye.